0: Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 166, Alexander Pushkin, Part 3. Last time, we recounted Pushkin's years of exile and his meeting with Tsar Nicholas I. Today, we cover the period where he meets his wife, finishes his greatest work, Eugene Onegin, and dies in a duel for his wife's honor. Now that Pushkin has been granted an amnesty by the Tsar, he felt free to write and to read his works to his friends. But this was not quite the case. With the Tsar taking a liking to the young man came greater scrutiny than ever. Pushkin was followed everywhere he went, and every word he spoke in public was noted. And Bankendorf reported his findings to Nicholas on a regular basis. For the most part, Pushkin kept true to his word. There was an occasional faux pas such as not getting his work reviewed by the Tsar before reading it to his friends and acquaintances. But what got him into hot water at this time was a piece he wrote back in 1821 called The Gabrilliad. The work was considered almost pornographic for the time, and certainly was blasphemous. It called into question the true father of Jesus. When asked by a court looking into the authorship, he nervously, but firmly, denied writing it. Few people believed him, so more pressure was put on Pushkin. Tsar Nicholas wrote to Count P.A. Tolstoy, the commander-in-chief of St. Petersburg and Kronstadt, the following, quote, Count Tolstoy is to summon Pushkin to his presence and tell him in my name that since I know Pushkin personally, I believe his word. But I desire that he should assist the government to discover who could have composed something so vile and insulted Pushkin by using it under his name. When he came to the Count's office, he felt extremely nervous, and after a while, he asked if he could write a letter to His Majesty personally and privately. He wrote, When questioned by the authorities, I did not consider myself obliged to confess to a prank as shameful as it was criminal. But now, when questioned directly by the person of my sovereign, I declare that the Gabrilliad was composed by me in 1817. Throwing myself on the mercy and magnanimity of the tsar i am your imperial majesty's loyal subject alexander pushkin you should note that he says that he wrote the work in 1817 and not 1821 when he actually did write it he did this because if done in 1817 it would be the foolish work of an adolescent not an adult the tsar wrote back two weeks later and said quote this case is known to me in detail and it has been completely concluded the letter obviously worked But the humiliation was great, increasing Nicholas's influence over Pushkin. Because of his reputation and because of everyone knowing that he was always under surveillance, many of the women Pushkin courted or asked to marry him refused. He was turning thirty and he was feeling as though no one would become his bride. That is, until he laid eyes on Natalia Goncharova. Natalia was thirteen years Pushkin's junior, having been born in 1812. By the age of 16, when she first met Alexander, she was already considered one of the most beautiful women in all of Moscow. Her great-great-grandfather, Afanasy Abramovich, was a favorite of Peter the Great, having built a paper manufacturing empire. Goncharov paper was considered the finest in all of Russia at the time, but Natalia's father squandered much of the family fortune and was declared demented in 1815. This made her a perfect social match for Pushkin. On May 1st, 1830, Count Tolstoy, known as Tolstoy the American, asked Natalia's mother for her daughter's hand for Pushkin. The mother, while not refusing the offer, took a wait-and-see attitude, as she felt that Natalia was still too young to marry. Pushkin wrote the following letter to the mother, I should write to you on my knees, shedding tears of gratitude, not that, when Tolstoy has brought me your response, this response is not a refusal. You allow me hope. However, if I still murmur, if sadness and bitterness mix with my feelings of happiness, do not accuse me of ingratitude. I understand the prudence and tenderness of a mother, but pardon the impatience of a sick heart, drunk with happiness. I leave instantly. I take with me in the depths of my soul the image of that celestial being who owes her existence to you. He then left Moscow, traveling to the southern region of Russia to avoid the temptation of seeing Natalia. During his trip, he took notes that would become the work Journey to Erzurum, which would be published in 1835. There was a war going on at the time between Persia and Russia, so this is where he went. Arriving at one of the camps near Kars, he ran into some old friends, Nikolai, and Alexander Riavsky. But Pushkin was not there to meet old acquaintances. He was there to fight, and he did. Here's an official record of his action. Quote, the skirmish of 14 June 1829 is remarkable, because our famous poet A.S. Pushkin took part in it. When the troops, having completed an arduous march, were resting in the Inza Sioux Valley, the enemy subtly attacked our forward line. The poet, hearing in his proximity for the first time the sounds of war, could not restrain a surge of enthusiasm. In a poetic impulse, he immediately sprang out of the headquarters, mounted a horse, and in a minute was among the outposts. Major Sevichev, an experienced officer who General Reyevsky dispatched in pursuit of the poet, had difficulty overtaking him, and was obliged to remove him forcibly from the Cossack front, lying just as Pushkin Animated by that courage so charismatic of a new recruit, seizing a lance from one of the dead Cossacks, galloped against the enemy cavalry. It can be imagined how extremely astonished our men of the dawn were, seeing before them an unknown hero in a cloak and round hat. The plague broke out in the area, so Pushkin decided to head out. He met a group of gamblers, and within five days he was flat broke. But this was the least of his troubles because Tsar Nicholas found out that the poet had traveled to Erzurum and he was furious. The emperor dictated the following to von Benkendorf: Pushkin is to be asked who gave him permission to go to Erzurum. Firstly, it is beyond the frontier and secondly, he has forgotten that he must inform me in advance of everything that he does at least as far as traveling is concerned. This means that the next time He will be assigned a residence. What that meant was, if you don't listen to me, I'll put you under house arrest like I did when you stayed at Mikhailovskoy. The word got out about his trip to the front, and many were expecting Pushkin to write about it. But the work Journey to Erzurum was not published for many years. What he did print was the seventh chapter of Eugene Onegin. His critics jumped on him. One, Bulgarin's Northern Bee which did not particularly like Alexander, wrote this, quote, And so our hope has vanished. We thought the author of Ruslan and Lyudmila had hastened to the Caucasus to slake his thirst with new impressions and in sweet verses to transmit to posterity, the great exploits of the modern Russian heroes. We thought that the great events in the East, astonishing the world and winning for Russia the respect of all civilized nations, would awaken the genius of our poets. But we were mistaken. The celebrated liars have remained silent, and in the desert of our poetry, Onagin has appeared again, wan, weak. Pushkin made his way back to Moscow and headed straight to the Goncharovs, and he got there very early in the morning, but Natalia refused to see him without her mother, who was still asleep when Alexander got there. We're now in 1829, and the Russians just successfully defeated turkey in the russo-turkish war of 1828 to 29 this war and the russo-persian war of 1827 to 28 were the two that would help trigger the upcoming crimean war st peters though st petersburg though was in a celebratory mood pushkin for his part went to all the soirées and in january of 1830 he went to one given by the french ambassador the tsar was not pleased as he wrote to Benkendorf quote, apropos of that ball, you ought to tell Pushkin that it is improper for him alone to be in civilian dress when we are all in uniform, and that he should at least get himself a court uniform. Henceforth, in similar circumstances, let him do this. Later that week, on January seventh, 1930, Pushkin wrote to Bankendorf asking, quote, while I am still neither married nor attached to the service, I would wish to travel either to France or to Italy. However, if this is not granted, I would request the favor of visiting China with the mission that is to travel there. The reply, which came ten days later, said, quote, His Majesty the Emperor has not deemed you to acquiesce in your request to travel believing that this would excessively derange your pecuniary affairs, and at the same time distract you from your occupations. Your desire to accompany our mission to China cannot be put into effect either, since all the members have already been designated and cannot be changed without informing the court at Peking. Pushkin now realized fully that the Tsar had no intention of ever letting the poet leave the country. He never asked to travel outside Russia again. Over the next few months, Pushkin got into a literary battle with one Fede Bulgarin the editor of the Northern Bee. Alexander was editing a competing magazine known as the Literary Gazette. Pushkin's Boris Gudnov had just been allowed to be released after some minor changes, but so was Bulgarin's Dmitri the Impostor about the same time period, the Time of Troubles. Bulgarin was a known spy for the Third Department under Benckendorf, and it was thought that he was given an advanced copy of Pushkin's work because there were so many similarities. There was a kind of pissing match between the two of them, which went public, which really annoyed the Tsar. And he was really siding with Pushkin on this one, but Benkendorf used his influence to avoid his agent from getting censored. The battle between the two became quite personal with each throwing out insults at each other. The Tsar became annoyed and pretty much suggested that the two knock it off before he got involved in the melee. Around that time, a woman entered into Pushkin's life that he had met Nine years prior, Karolina Sobanska. Alexander was now of the opinion that his chances were with Natalia were getting slimmer by the day, so he became enchanted with Karolina. As Binion puts it in his biography of Pushkin quote, Sobanska, four years older than he, was a voluptuous, experienced woman, dazzlingly charming, cosmopolitan well-read, with an insider's knowledge of politics and a fine brain. Compared to her, the 18-year-old Natalia, though slim and virginally beautiful, was a provincial simpleton with little knowledge of literature and less of the world. Pushkin's friend, Vyazemsky had written to Alexander, though, that he had heard that things were looking up for a marriage between the poet and Natalia. Pushkin hurried back to Moscow, but in the back of his head he was wondering, Which woman was the right one for him? Sobanska, who would allow the poet to remain a bachelor, or Natalia, who would change his life to that of a married man? But on April 5, 1830, Pushkin finally got brave enough to ask for Natalia's hand in marriage. Much to his surprise, her mother agreed, partly because their family's financial situation had gotten worse. Marrying off one of her daughters would help. It was thought that the wedding would occur no earlier than September, but in August, Pushkin's uncle Vasily passed away. This, with the requisite mourning period, along with some deep financial problems, threatened the union. The problems really stemmed from the enormous gambling debts that he had acquired over the past few years. Not only that, but the Goncharovs were having financial difficulties, making it difficult to come up with a dowry. Pushkin decided to hold off to Baldino, where he would finish the stories entitled The Tales of the Late Ivan Petrovich Belkin. Now, the main reason for heading there was to take ownership of 200 serfs his father gave him from Alexander's late uncle. He would quickly mortgage the souls to help improve his financial situation. But a major problem developed when Pushkin got to Boldino, and that was a major outbreak of cholera. The government had instituted a quarantine system, which a person would have to stay in for 14 days in a town before being let out, but it turned out to be really totally ineffective as the disease reached Moscow in September. The quarantines made it impossible for Pushkin to make it back to Moscow until around December 5th. The wedding was back on, and on February 18th, 1831, at the Great Ascension Church on Bolshaya Nikitskaya Street in Moscow, Alexander and Natalia were married. For the first months of their marriage, which was seemingly a happy one, the two did have one major problem, and that was Pushkin's mother-in-law. She meddled in everything they did together, which annoyed and angered Alexander to no end. Within a month, he had reached his limit. He wrote to his friend Pletnev, quote, "I have no intention whatsoever of remaining in Moscow. The reasons for this are known to you." and every day are added new ones. By the middle of May, they were all fed up. The couple headed off to Tsarskoy Selo. Life with Natalia was then peaceful and loving. The couple enjoyed the lack of interference from her mother. By mid-October, Natalia was pregnant with their first child, so they moved to St. Petersburg in anticipation of the birth. They also began to be part of the circle of high society and the town where Natalia's beauty was immediately noticed. What was also noticed was her lack of intelligence. As one of the circle, Dali Ficlement wrote, Madame Pushkina, the poet's wife, has the greatest success. One could not be more beautiful nor look more poetic. And yet she is far from witty and even seems to have little imagination. But in the background, not... All was well, especially the financial situation of the Pushkin family. His meager government's salary, which was reinstated by the Order of Tsar Nicholas, was only 5,000 rubles a year, which was only double the rent of his apartment. His writing would net him double that, but it was nowhere near covering his annual expenses. According to Binion, when Pushkin died in 1837, his estate was over 100,000 rubles in debt. In 1834, his work, The Tales of Belkin, was finally published, a work that he had written when he was in Boldino. While it was successfully financially successful financially, it was only bought in about half of what Pushkin had expected. On May 19, 1832, a daughter named Maria was born to the couple. She was considered to be the model for Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. But tragedy was to strike Natalia's family soon thereafter, with the death of her grandfather, Afanasi. They thought that they would get a large inheritance, but alas, this was not to be. They were promised 100,000 rubles, but in the end, only received about 8,000. Pushkin was forced by his financial woes to head to Moscow in business. During this time, we see problems creeping into the relationship between Alexander and Natalia. In his letters to her, he constantly harps on her flirtations with other men, The other problem was how she was handling the household. She was firing servants left and right, as well as creating total chaos with her orders to others. This also caused more financial woes for the family. Despite all the trouble, Pushkin continued to write. Eugene Onegin was finally published as a whole work. On January 7, 1833, Alexander was elected a member of the Russian Academy, a very high honor. Pushkin was also doing a lot of research during this period, which was to become the captain's daughter. Another child was born during this period, Alexander, on July seventh, 1833. He also wrote one of his most enduring narrative poems, The Bronze Horseman, after the statue of Peter the Great in St. Petersburg. Unfortunately, the Tsar was not all too pleased with the work and made countless notes of things he wanted changed. Pushkin didn't have it, in him to do that, so it lingered unpublished until after his death. Another couple of masterpieces were produced at the same time, the Queen of Spades and the Pugachev Rebellion. Add to that some short works, The Fisherman and the Fish, Seven Valiant Knights, The Dead Princess, and Angelo. It was one of the most prolific periods of writing in Pushkin's life. But again, things were not all peaches and cream in his life. His wife was now one of the most wanted people in high society. Even Tsar Nicholas wanted to have her at all the posh soirees and balls. With this popularity came even more financial hardships, as the cost of all her dresses was staggering. Pushkin had to ask for a 20,000 ruble advance from the government to help pay his debt off. Nicholas approved, as he knew that this would deepen his teeth into the very soul of the poet. Pushkin went from admiring the Tsar to loathing him, as we see in his diary. He could not publish anything or let anyone know how he felt, so he kept it to himself. But he had to busy himself with more writing to keep his mind off the situation. In December of 1833, Pushkin was to meet Nikolai Gogol. They would meet numerous times and greatly admired each other's work. But financial problems kept increasing in 1833-34 to 34 for the entire Pushkin family. His father, brother, and his fortunes All went further into debt, almost becoming unbearable for the poet. In eighteen thirty-four, the only work he produced, while trying to fix things, was the Tale of the Golden Cockerel. And that year, on top of it, Natalia's two sisters, Ekaterina and Alexandra, who were twenty-five and twenty-three respectively, came to St. Petersburg to get away from their mother, and perhaps find a mate. They moved in with their sister and husband, which added to the financial and emotional difficulties. The book on the Pugachev Rebellion did not sell as well as expected. When he died, they found 1,775 copies out of the 3,000 that were printed. Because of the 20,000 ruble loan he took out, part of it to help pay for the run, the book actually caused him to lose 4,000 rubles. Throughout the next few years, Pushkin's main problems were all financial until the appearance of one Baron Georges-Charles d'Anthe D'Anthès was a knight's guard of the Empress, as coronet, having arrived in Russia in 1834 from France. When he first laid eyes on Natalia Pushkina, he was in love. Now, there have been arguments on both sides that there never was an affair between the two. But I have some doubts of this, and also there was an anonymous letter sent to Alexander nominating him as deputy grandmaster and historiograph of the Order of the Cuckolds. This was met with a furious response by Pushkin by sending Dante's adoptive father a scathing and insulting letter. Dante's had married Natalia's sister, Ekaterina, on January 10, 1837, but some have claimed this to be a smokescreen to prevent Alexander from finding out about the affair with his wife. This is probably not true, as she really did love Dante's, and she stayed with him until she died in childbirth six years later, in 1843. Pushkin and Dante's decided a duel was in order to be held on January 17, 1837. Here is the description of it as portrayed in Vignion's biography of the poet: Quote, The principals were placed twenty paces apart and given their pistols. Danzis gave the signal by raising his hat. Pushkin reached the barrier first and had begun to take aim when Danthes still a pace from his barrier fired. Pushkin fell on Danza's coat, his blood would leave a stain on the lining. I think my thigh is broken," he said. The seconds hurried towards him. danthes made an involuntary movement forward, but was stopped by Pushkin. Wait, I feel strong enough to have my shot when he had gone down, his pistol had fallen into the snow. Dantes gave him the other. Dantes stood by the barrier, sideways on, with his right arm covering his chest. Raising himself in his left arm, Pushkin fired. Dantes fell. Asked by Pushkin where he was wounded, he replied, I think the ball is in my chest. Bravo! Pushkin cried and threw his pistol aside. In actuality, the ball had hit Dantes in his arm and then likely hit a button on his chest, only giving him a contusion. Pushkin, on the other hand, had suffered a fatal wound to the stomach that would kill him a couple of days later. Alexander Sergeyevich Pushkin was a mere 37 years old when he died. He had dueled some 29 times in his life, with the last one taking it. After he died, his works fell into disregard, but were revived years later with the death of his antagonist, Tsar Nicholas I. His works are considered the founding of modern Russian literature, having influenced such writers as Ivan Turgenev, Ivan Goncharov, Leo Tolstoy, Mikhail Lermontov. You know, when reading about his life, it is pretty depressing while researching for this podcast. His gambling and debt ridden life, along with the constant pressure of censorship of his works, were really troubling. But one has to lay the blame solely at his feet, as his hot tempered nature and addiction to high stakes gambling were to blame for many of his problems. Still, we have the great breadth of his works by which to remember the brighter side of his life, that of a literary genius. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join me next time as I take you on a different journey. We'll be discussing a recurring tragedy in the life of Russia and its people, the great famines of Russia and the Soviet Union. As I mentioned last time, we have a library at my blog site, RussianRulersHistory.com, where you can find some of the books I've created, used in creating the podcast. And I've added two new ones last week—the two that I used to research the podcast series on Pushkin. So now, as always, досвидания и спасибо большое.